Shalom, shalom, friends. So excited to jump into Maimonides with you all today. Very, very exciting. There's really a lot to say and uh, a lot of good conversation to have here about the great Rambam, the great Maimonides. And let's start today actually with a little poll here to get our, our thoughts flowing about um, about this thinker. What is the best side of religion? When religion is rational and ethic-centered? When religion is mystical and spiritual? Just the food, really. <laughs> so what's the best side of, of religion? When religion is rational and ethic-centered? when religion is mystical and spiritual, or just the food, really. <laughs> okay, let's give you a moment. Okay, very interesting. Nobody voted for the food. I guess you wouldn't be joining a philosophy class if you were just in it for the food. 56% uh, say re when religion is rational and ethic-centered. 44% say when, re when religion is mystical and spiritual. Of course, that does not encompass all possibilities of what religion can do or be for us. But that's a good way to get started. Now, all of our thinkers thus far have been Gentiles, of course, as will almost all of the thinkers be. Um, Hannah Arendt, of course, is not. Levinas is not. I'm trying to think of those. Oh, Spinoza is not. Well, Spinoza is complicated. I don't know what he is. But um, so there's a few exceptions. Um, and our first exception is Moses Maimonides because um, he is relevant to the world, not just to us. Um, and so we're going to dive into the Rambam. Why do I call him Rambam, by the way? Because his name is Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon. Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon, which is the you know acronym of Rambam. And so, um, by the way, he, uh, you know, we'll come back to the fact that his name is Moses. And I think that he has some, some warranted arrogance. He really is just, I mean so um, um, far beyond the, the, the common masses of his time, far beyond the philosophers of his time, far beyond the philosophers that preceded him and came after him, that it makes sense that he would often equate, not often, he at least on one occasion equated himself to Moses or as being a second Moses, kind of, so to speak, of bringing the world to a next era, in a sense, was what he saw himself doing. So what is God like? Can we really know at all? Is the debate over the meaning of the written Torah only about how it is to be applied in our world? Or does it point us to deeper philosophical truths? Is it our responsibility to just accept Torah as it is, or does it reflect specific values? In some ways, we can't discuss Judaism after the 12th century at all without at least implicitly talking about the Rambam. His application of philosophical principles to Jewish thought and practice forever changed what it meant to be Jewish. Maimonides composed three major works, including a commentary on the entire Mishnah, the first comprehensive law known as Mishnah Torah, and the Guide for the Perplexed, which attempted to bridge between the truths of philosophy and Judaism. Now, of course, here, our big interest is in number three, the more Nevuchim, the guide for the perplexed. However, his number two was very controversial because what was the Talmud? 
the Talmud to some degree resolves debates, but it keeps the debates alive. What Maimonides did in the Mishnah Torah was resolve the debates. He was the first one to do this, very controversially. He wrote a book of Jewish law. He didn't say, oh, you could do this and you could do that. He said, here's what you do, right? And that was a game changer. Now, there's a pro and there's a con there. The pro is that the masses didn't know what to do, and now they know what to do. They couldn't study Talmud. It's very complicated. Not only is the, is the logic complicated, you have to know Aramaic to even read it. There's no translations out there. And so that was a big uh, thing for him to do, to simplify it, make it clear. And just like today, a lot of people don't want to you know, read all the complex back and forth of historical debate. They want to say, give me a self-help book. Give me a how-to Judaism book. Tell me how to light Shabbat candles. Tell me what how to do Hanukkah, right? This is very popular today, the how-tos. That's what he wanted to do. That's the pro. The con side is he did great damage to the, the dialectical approach of keeping debate alive, of understanding different ways to do things. And so he wrote that for the dumb masses, as, as he might have thought of it, the people who have who had no education and who could basically just need to know basically how to be a Jew. Number three, Guide for the Perplex, he wrote for the intellects. He wrote that and he even says over there, please don't touch this book or anything near it if you're not um, you know, extremely educated because it's going to misguide you. It's going to misguide you. It's going to give you uh, ideas that are far more complex. It's going to make your life worse, the kind of problems I'm going to create for you. <laughs> Right. And so, too, just like he wouldn't want the scholars so much engaged with his Mishnah Torah, although that changes later. So, in effect, the Mishnah Torah, as we mentioned, simplified the Talmud for the masses. Instead of needing to ask a rabbi how, how the more than 2,700 winding pages of the Talmud translate into Jewish practice, someone could simply refer to the Mishnah Torah, which would tell them what they needed to do. To get the fullness of the Jewish tradition, Though, with all the debates and stories, one received no help from Maimonides and still needed to go to the Talmud itself. A Spanish-born immigrant to Egypt, uh, now it's worth noting he stops in Morocco. We don't talk about his, his first part of his life in Spain, his second part of his life in Egypt, but he had some influence in Morocco as well. Um, in addition to being a halachist, a scholar of Jewish law, um, and being an all-around intellectual and a scholar of language. In fact, the Times of Israel, I think yesterday or sometime this week, found, shared another new manuscript from the Karaganiza around another um, uh, kind of book of language he put out, or at least some documentation around language he was doing that people didn't even know he knew this, this, this other language and was, was able to translate it. He was also a renowned physician and scientist. He is known as even the physician for the sultan. The uh, sultan, I think you pronounce his name, Saladin, but I'm not exactly sure. Saladin. Um, starts working for the chief secretary of Saladin and then ultimately for him as well. Um, his most indelible mark on the, on the, on the, on the, the world of Judaism and otherwise, though, was as a philosopher his principal work being the guide for the perplexed, as mentioned. And like the Islamic philosophers of his era, Maimonides was heavily influenced by Aristotelianism. For example, he subscribed to Aristotle's idea of the golden mean, which we've discussed in relationship in relation to Socrates and Aristotle. 
He also embraced the Greek idea of the perfection of the intellect and believed one achieves eternal life by attaching themselves to perfect truth. Right now here, um, just as a reminder, um, Maimonides is a rarity in a lot of ways, but especially in his view of the afterlife. He's, he's a little bit of, and with all my, if I say anything that sounds denigrating to Rambam, it's only with love. I, I, I really have only admiration for him, but he was an, he was an intellectual snob. He, and, and his view of the afterlife was also a position of an intellectual snob, where what, what's the most common view of kind of the afterlife Jewishly? It's that you be a good person, you be a mensch, you do mitzvot, you do the right stuff. Uh-uh, not so much for Maimonides. He sort of felt like, if you attain truth, then and you attach yourself to the perfect intellect, then your soul, which is connected to the eternal, will continue eternally to be connected. If you just didn't spend your life in, embraced in the intellectual and deeply spiritual matters that matter, um, you're eternal. And so you basically don't have any kind of continued existence. It's not this binary of punishment, heaven and hell. It's kind of more natural, right? The eternal part of you connected to the eternal part or it didn't. And so um, essentially the philosophers have this bliss to come because they spent their lives contemplating the eternal truths. And those who didn't spend their time doing that um, essentially don't have this afterlife. So he did embrace this Greek idea of the perfection of the intellect and believed one achieves eternal life by attaching themselves to perfect truth. Unlike other rabbis who desired for Jews to embrace a culture of learning and debate, Rambam wanted Jews to adopt the correct practices and beliefs that would enable them to cling to the eternal divine truth. The effect of this was that as a legalist, he made Judaism simpler than it typically is understood to be. And as a philosopher, he made Judaism more complicated than it had to be. Now, let me give an example of his simplification. He created something called the 13 principles of faith. And this is controversial because these ideas do not precede him. I mean, yes, the concepts do, but the idea that a Jew should believe in these 13 things, uh, here's his 13. Number one, the existence of God. Number two, God's you into elements, right? God is one, can't be divided. Number three, God's spirituality and incorporeality, right? God does not have a body. This is a huge deal from Rambam, right? Rambam wants no physicality. Number four, God's eternity. Five, God's alone should be object of worship. Nothing else to worship, no one else. Number six, revelation through God's prophets. Number seven, the preeminence of Moshe among the prophets. Number eight, that the entire Torah, both the written and oral, are, are of divine origin and were dictated to Moshe by God at Mount Sinai. Number nine, the Torah given by Moses is permanent and will not be replaced or changed. Number 10, God's awareness of all human actions and thoughts. Number, you know, um, omniscience. Number 11, reward of righteous and punishment of evil, right? Scharva onish, it's called. 12, the coming of the Jewish Messiah. Number 13, the resurrection of the dead. Now, again, this is a major chidush, a major insight, because uh, Jews do not require belief. 
so much. Um, we are people of mitzvot, almost all of which are actions, according to many counts. 611 of the 613 biblical mitzvot are actions, right? We may command feeling, like be joyful on the holiday. How do you command feeling? Actually, is also through action. Or if we command love, we don't mean an emotional state of love. We mean doing the things that entail love. So even when it sounds like an emotion, that becomes codified through action. Um, and even those who reject that the first of the Ten Commandments is belief in God. Those who say, yes, it's implicit, but it's not explicitly a one of the Taryag mitzvot, one of the six of 13. So this is the real big innovation of the Rambam to say Jews have to believe stuff. Okay. Rambam summarized the correct beliefs a Jew must know and affirm in his 13 principles of faith, which we just mentioned. Further, and here it kind of sums up, uh, you, know, you know, kind of an example of, 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 of that. Further, Rambam believed that virtues are cultivated through practice and habituation. This is part of him being an Aristotelian as well. He thinks, how do people learn? Through habit. Now, that's a behavioralist approach as, a pro, as a, opposed to a, a cognitive approach. Even though he's an intellectual, he doesn't think you learn just through the mind. You learn through practice. Right? You want to you wanna learn something, you continue to do it. And therefore, he simplified the Jewish faith into 13 principles and Jewish law into a code. Without a clear path to follow, Rambam was concerned that Jews would find themselves going astray. While one might think that the marginalization of questions and debate, along with the formalization of dogma, doesn't sound very Jewish, his ideas have largely been accepted after the fact. But even so, they were not without controversy during and after his life. Right? People even burning his books in his day. This was largely due to Rambam's reliance on Aristotelian philosophy, which had previously been considered outside of Judaism. Professor of Jewish philosophy, Dr. Alan Middleman, not to be mistaken with a different Alan Middleman who passed away two weeks ago, the father of Rabbi Jeff Middleman, explains it in the following manner. Part of the controversy is about the limits of in, of intellectual openness, but also the nature of intellectual integrity. Is it possible to have full intellectual integrity, full mature stature as a human being, just within the four cubits of Torah? Or do you need to go outside the spirit, the special learning and tradition of the Jews? Maimonides welcomes the outside because he believes it's the duty of the Torah to welcome truth wherever it comes. Ah, that becomes an important point. The Rambam says explicitly, accept the truth from wherever you find it, wherever you find it. So he says over there, I'm not going to quote all the people where these ideas emerged from because it would lead you to dismissing my ideas. You know, smart, smart idea, because if he quoted everything he was sharing in the name where it emerged from, uh, people would dismiss it. Right. But I think. Today, we like to talk about denominations, reform, conservative, orthodox, reconstructionist, renewal, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, there's many other ways to divide up different types of Jews. And one of the ways to do that would be around where we learn our truth from. So if you're in the ultra-orthodox camp, you learn Torah from one place. Excuse me, you learn truth from one place. Traditional text. You have no interest in mathematics, 
in science, in linguistics, in any of the arts and sciences and the humanities. If you are uh, of the more liberal origins, you're going to prioritize the arts and sciences and the humanities over Torah, right? Then there's this middle camp that we've been discussing that understands all of it has to be put together. And that's, that's part of Maimonides' project. The part that understands we have to learn the best of philosophy, the best of all the fields of sciences and the like. And all of that has to come together with Judaism. All right. It's not that my Judaism is going to Yom Kippur or my Judaism is going to APAC. And then I really get my, my, my worldview from CNN and the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Right. Um, and from, you know, my college degree. Um, it's that all of this actually, all of it comes together ultimately. And so um, this is a big deal for Maimonides and very controversial. To us, it's so obvious because American Jews go to college. In fact, almost all American Jews go to college. Um, and almost all American Jews go to post-college. Uh, not almost all, but you know, a very high percentage. Um, you know, disproportionate to the, the average American by far in terms of how embracing we are of liberal studies. And yet, um, um, Maimonides understands that that doesn't make Torah incomplete. Torah is enhanced. You might think, ah, Torah is incomplete if you can't get everything from it. He says, no, Torah is enhanced, but not incomplete. So to reconcile Torah with philosophy, Rambam argued that Torah cannot be understood literally. Again, big deal. An overly simple reading of the Torah, for example, might lead someone to believe that God physically walks in the Garden of Eden or brings the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt with a literal outstretched arm, or sits as a white-haired man on a throne. Maimonides was adamant that God does not have a physical body, and that anyone who disagrees with this was to be considered outside the fold of Jewish belief. Very radical. I mean, so obvious to us today because of his influence. But at that time, he is willing to reread any part of the Torah where that is literal, where he thinks it contradicts these philosophical principles. Instead, biblical verses must be understood allegorically, a point Rambam makes clear in the introduction to the Guide for the Perplexed. Only then can it be seen how they point to deeper philosophical truths. Here's what he writes over there in this introduction. Taken literally, such expressions contain wisdom useful for many purposes, among others, for the improvement of the condition of society. Their hidden meaning, meaning, however, is profound wisdom, conducive to the recognition of real truth. Now, one of the important things about Jewish hermeneutics is that we don't reject different levels of interpretation. We embrace multiple layers to truth and interpretation, right? That's called pardes, right? Let me write this in the side in case anyone's not familiar with pardes. Pardes means four things. Number one, shot. Number two, remes. Number three, drush. Number four, sod. That's what pardes comes from. Shot means the literal read of a text. Remes means there's a hint. Drush means kind of the homiletical view, what we call a drusha. You're kind of bouncing off the text. And sod is the secret, the secret layer. It's not when I give a drush that I reject shot. It's not when I give a homiletical approach that I reject the literal approach. It's that I embrace the literal, literal approach as having one layer of, of 
of meaning. And then there's these other layers of meaning as well that we can embrace, right? Um, we talked about paradox in truth and in, in emotion last session. So too, the paradox of multiple, multiple layers of truth that may even contradict each other. That's the way we learn Torah is, is, through, is through that paradoxical approach. And so instead of accepting the, the Bible's descriptions of God at face value, he developed what's called his famously his negative theology, which is to say, we can't know what God is. We can only identify what God is not. God has no definable essential attributes because God exists beyond language. So, so it is heresy and idolatry to say that God is anything. So it says, he would even say God is good. Can't say that. Of course, he thinks God is good, but you can't say that God is good. He thinks God's eternal, but he can't say God is eternal, right? Um, can't say God has this or does, this, or what you can say is what God does. Whatever labels we attempt to apply to God, they can only define God in a limited and therefore incorrect fashion. Further, we cannot talk about God's accidental attributes as opposed to his essential attributes. In this case, traits that define how God is all powerful or all good, since they require evolution and adaptation and God is unchanging. This is a big point of his, um, this unchanging nature. Of course, um, other Hasidic thinkers, Kabbalists, are going to talk about div changing divinity, a God that responds to us, a God that cries with us, a God that evolves, right, in many ways. For Rambam, this is the worst of the worst of ideas. This is, ought to be completely rejected. Even if we can say little about what God is, Rambam makes clear we can know God's actions and seek to imitate those good actions. For, for instance, God took us out of slavery in Egypt. And so too, to be like God, we should be liberators of others. Even though Rambam was Jewish and was the most influential Jewish thinker of the past thousand years by far, we can still question whether we as contemporary Jews wish to be Maimonidean. I believe some of his ideas can be powerful, while others might require modification. First of all, we can't separate Rambam from the Judaism we've inherited. His impact is just too great. In many ways, we are all Maimonidean in that we don't believe God has a human form and sits on a physical throne up in the heavens. We can, in part, thank Rambam for making this understanding the, the standard Jewish belief. Still, if we hold too rigidly to Rambam's ideas, we will conceive of God as distant and unable to understand our spiritual needs. Many times we want to engage with a personal God of emotion, whom we'd call our father and our king, Avinu Makenu, or our source of motherly knowledge of Bina, or the divine feminine presence, the Shekhinah. Even though we don't believe these to be literal descriptions of God, they capture the different ways we relate to divinity. But by not only focusing on what God isn't, we can paint a far richer and more accurate picture of our relationship to God. As a Maimonidean, it is hard, if not impossible, to meaning, meaningfully pray to God, as God is described in the Jewish traditional prayer book. Um, how, how can we even ask for anything or, um, or speak to, to, some, you know, to a being like this? And while Rambam shies away from bogging his readers down with Talmudic debates, 
he does want us to understand the reasons for Jewish practice. In his Sefer HaMitzvot, and in the Guide for the Perplexed, he lays out the reasons for the commandments. Rambam knew that we are rational, meaning-making beings, and that we will always seek to understand the religious rituals and practices we engage in. Rambam provides reasons for the commandments, thereby showing how they point to higher philosophical truths and ethical maxims. Where he might have lacked a desire to satisfy that need of ours, though, was in how he refused to make meaning of God's being. We want to know who and what God is, but Maimonides pushes us away from this entirely. In deciding how we understand the Jewish tradition, we might ask ourselves, is an emphasis on negative theology too restrictive? Though we don't necessarily understand the Bible literally, that doesn't mean we must only understand it philosophically as well. For example, why not take a more mystical path of understanding Torah, as done by the Ramban, Nachmanides, a younger contemporary of Ramban? Further, there are benefits to Jewish law being codified, made simple in a way that makes it accessible to the masses. However, there's also a cost. The true beauty and power of Jewish law can only be grasped when seeing its complexity and diversity. Maimonides is the most important Jewish philosopher of all time, but it's critical to keep in mind he's not at all the only thinker in the Jewish tradition. Whatever we decide we, to make of him, his ideas should be put in conversation with other competing and complementary views. While Rambam was the one to in large part make the Jewish tradition what it is today, Judaism's understanding of God is not defined by him alone. So friends, I want to add just a few concluding points here. One of the other most popular ideas of Maimonides, or well-known, I should say, um, is his um, level of tzedakah. Um, I think most um, kids who go to Sunday school learn this. And um, I want to just pull them up um, to remind us of his eight layers of what it means to be charitable. Um, and this is Talmudically informed for sure. And I just posted it in the chat, but for some reason the numbers didn't paste. So let me read these out. For him, the lowest level of how to be charitable, number one, is to give begrudgingly. Somebody comes and you're like, fine, I'll give. I don't want to give, I don't really want to do it, but here. Number two, it, the, the second lowest level, giving less than one should give, but giving it cheerfully, right? Um, so you're, you definitely have the financial means to give $100, or if you know you're giving an annual gift, you know, giving a heads up on that rather than waiting to be asked. Number fourth lowest level, giving before being, at, um, before being asked, okay? Number five, giving when you do not know the recipient's identity, but the recipient knows your identity. The recipient is potentially uh, spared from um, the potential embarrassment of the face-to-face -face encounter um, and, and feeling they have a debt to you because they've been received from you, but the recipient still knows who, who the giver is. The sixth lowest level, giving when you know the recipient's identity, but the recipient doesn't know your identity. 
which is to say, and it's unclear if the recipient knows who the giver, uh, um, knows that the giver, the giver knows that identity, but that spares, again, some level of embarrassment around the encounter, um, but also removes this debt that may have there. Okay, seventh lo lowest level, or really better to say the second highest level, is giving when neither party knows the other's identity. Neither person knows who the giver or who the receiver is. Um, and then the eighth or the, um, or the highest level is enabling the recipient to become self-reliant, which is to say that it's a loan rather than a gift. Now, what, as, as with everything we engage, we shouldn't just blindly accept these as the true Jewish um, ideals. Unfortunately, many people unfortunately teach it that way, that this is the Jewish approach to what philanthropy should be or what tzedakah should be. But there's many other ways to think of this. Um, and so we can engage that conversation as well. Okay, so the last few things I want to say, one is that he's buried in Tiberia, in Tiberias. So if you, you know, go to Israel and go on some tours and you find yourself near Tiberias, it's worth visiting his grave if you like to do things like that. I, I, I'm someone who really likes to visit graves. I find it awe-inspiring um, and humbling. Um, but if that's your thing, then it's worth visiting in Tiberia. He's not the only one. There's a few great people who are buried. I mean, many great people who are buried over there in Tiberia. It's so interesting in Israel because it's like a shopping mall right next to it, you know, like a falafel stand. You know, you may have found this controversial news around this ice cream stand next to Auschwitz um, that's going on right now. And Auschwitz can't do much about it um, because it's off of their property, you know. Um, but, you know, what does it mean to kind of turn some of these places into spectacles and tourist attractions? And um, in any case, you know, there's nothing you could do about this. To, you know, there's a cemetery and then right next to it, you got a falafel stand. But, you know, that's not necessarily bad. The Auschwitz one is feels a little bit more more clear. Now, the last two things I'll say, um, one is that he is Sephardic. This ought to be obvious because he's from Spain, right? And so he, um, but it's worth noting that the first great legalist and the first great philosopher is a Sephardic Jew in a very Ashkenormative world um, where Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi approach is privileged. Um, that it's worth noting that deep Sephardic influence. And to be sure, there's many more Sephardic Jews that are strict Maimonidean in their religious practice than Ashkenazi Jews for that very reason. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that two of the thinkers we just recently engaged with were ones that Maimonides was very significantly influenced by. Ibn Sina, we, we learned about Ibn Sina, who of course was Avicenna, and we learned about Ibn Rushd, who was a, um, a um, Averroes. Um, Maimonides was, was studying their stuff very closely, deeply influenced by them. And the third Arabic scholar was Al-Farabi, to the point that he even, and I don't mean plagiarize in a bad way here, although plagiarize is generally a very bad word. He really kind of plagiarizes um, Al-Farabi in his in Maimonides' work called the Shmona Prakim, the eight chapters. Um, scholars say that about five of those eight chapters just come from Al-Farabi. Now, Maimonides gives a nod to it. He says in the beginning, um, I'm taking a lot of my ideas here from another place. I just can't say where because th then my ideas will be disqualified as not being Jewish. But again, he thinks if a great idea is a great idea, make it Jewish. Make it Jewish. 
I don't care. Don't call it a Muslim idea. If it's true, make it a Jewish idea. If it's true, make it a Jewish. So, so that's a big thing. Now, he is very cri critical of Christianity and not so critical of Islam. Islam is not idolatry. I mean, all, uh, according to almost every Jewish thinker, Islam is not idolatry, right? Islam does not want physical depiction of God. They go further than Jews on that. Of course, they don't even want physical depiction of Muhammad. Of course, this is, you know, riots emerged when you may have heard of the, the, the scholar in America who was fired based on this art. I actually disagree with that, but we could have that debate about this, this woman being fired for, for showing this artwork after many warnings, but let's bracket that. Islam is not idolatry, um, and he wants to learn a lot from Christianity, although he does say something positive. He says that Christianity and Islam helped to pave the path towards um, the Messianic era because they will be massive. Jews always have to be small. We want to be small, right? We don't want to take over the world. We want to be small. Christianity and Islam want to convert lots of people and take over the world. And so they're going to have much more success than we will at spreading monotheism, ethical monotheism in the world. And so he praises them both for that. Um, but he thinks Christianity is idolatry. As most traditional Jewish thinkers do, Christianity is idolatry. You can't walk in a church. Can't go in a church. This is a place of idolatry. This is an idol-worshipping place. Now, um, modern Jews don't think like this so much. Of course, ultra-Orthodox Jews won't go in a church for any reason. They won't vote for an election in there. They won't donate blood in there. There's no reason they'll walk into a church ever. Um, this is a place of idolatry. You have to die before going in there. You liberal Jews, of course, have no problem going in. There's a wedding. There's a blood drive. You're going you're gonna to vote an election. There's an interfaith rally, whatever's going on over there. Um, and so... Um, uh, so, yeah, he's very critical of Christianity on a number of fronts. But also, remember, he is immersed around Muslims. He's not in relationship with Christians. Christianity is way over there, right? And, he, you know, he's reading that stuff. But, um, you know, um, and Christian philosophers, we don't have that so much yet. We're going to see Christian philosophers come later. But what is Christianity so far? They're imperialists. They're Rome. They want to take over the world. They're, they're, they're militaristic, right? This is not a philosophical camp so much. Um, you know, who are the thinkers? Muslims, right? Um, and so, all right, anyways, let me pause there. That, um, I went way too long on this, but it's Maimonides. I mean, I, I could spend hours on my mind. So let me start with what is over here in the chat from um, Ethan over in Denver. He writes, is it appropriation to take non-Jewish ideas and make them Jewish? How can we be both inclusive of other traditions while also adopting ideas to fit our people? which makes us better. Okay, that's a beautiful question. Oh my gosh, I would love for others to grapple with this as well. The appropriation issue is very alive and well today in public discourse. For example, there's every year Jewish condemnations of the Christian Passover seders. Say, wait a minute, like Passover seders are ours, it's not yours. You know, don't, don't make this yours. You know, or Christians who say they wanna wear a kippah now. Right? Don't wear keep us. This is not yours to wear, right? Or, um, you know, so many examples. Um, so yes, there are there are forms of appropriation that um, are very controversial and are ones that are kind of um, a form of stealing and a way of um, of of you know it's most controversial when it when it when there's profit involved, right? When a sports team is named after native. Americans in a way that, hey, it's not, I mean, there's, there's multiple layers of that conversation, 
but hey, this is not yours. Why are you making money off an image, right? Like if you call the team the Phoenix Rabbis and you had a picture of this, you know, like most Jews over the age of 70 have some artwork, <laughs> not most. It's very common to have some artwork in the house or like a little dancing rabbi that you bought in Spot or you bought in Jerusalem. Nothing against that, you know, but you, you can imagine that being the, the kind of image of like the Phoenix rabbis hockey team, you know? <laughs> so, but there's other areas here where we take ideas um, and we understand them as um, actually bringing us closer. So like Judaism in its ancient form did not have feminism and democracy because no, no ancient ideologies did. And then they emerge and people um, bring them in. Thinkers bring them in. And we, they don't say, oh, democracy is an American idea. And as Jews, we're going to participate in the American idea. Jews make the Jewish case for democracy and they make democracy Jewish. So to the feminists, feminist the theologians don't say feminism is this outside thing and we're going to talk about it. Right. But by and large, like they're going to form a Jewish feminist theology. They're going to allow it to influence. And so, oh, my gosh, so much more to say there. OK, so to look towards next week. Um, next week, I'm very excited. We're going to skip really far ahead from Maimonides into, um, into Hobbes. Um, Thomas Hobbes is 17th century. So yes, we skipped a lot. You could, um, but it's, you know, I don't want to call it the dark ages, you know, but there's not a lot of, there, I mean, there's a ton of profound things going on in those time periods, but in the realm of philosophy, that's generally a period less productivity. And so um, we all know a little bit about Hobbes, but we're going to learn a whole lot more next week. And I look forward to that. Thank you for diving into the world of Maimonides. We only scratch the surface, but I, uh, he's, he's certainly going to reemerge in our conversation as we go. Have a great day, everybody.